0: Before there was a city, there was a cow. There was a cow and a dead body. I'm sure you know which story I'm telling, but if you haven't heard it before, the short of it is this. Some monks, the uncorrupted body of St. Cuthbert, and a couple of milkmaids walk into a bar. Then a city happens. Well, maybe I'm embellishing that a little. Really, it's a story about getting lost and losing things, and ultimately, finding what it is that you need. It's also a story about how a cathedral was founded by a dead body, and a cow who chose where to put it. This is The Elvet Mysteries, and I am your host, Livy Jones. Welcome to episode 4, The Dun Cow. Good evening. Where to begin? I suppose to say sorry if I worried you. I've been going through some things. Most of those things on air in front of you all. It's difficult sometimes when you have what feels like the weight of the world on your shoulders, to get some perspective. I I think, now, I have that perspective. I'll begin with a story and get back to me in a little while. This one is called Imposter Syndrome.
1: There is something at the heart of this university. If you peel it apart and look in, there it is. You could call it a soul if you wanted to. This thing, as far as I can tell, is mostly dictated by the students and the academics. I think because of this, it reflects the student's body more than it reflects anything else. Now, you have to ask yourself, what lies at the heart of every student? What do we have in common as a group? If you were to take a piece of us each, and put it together, what would it turn out like? Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not really telling this in order, but the beginning was this. I got into university. What a twist. (laughs) Well done me, right? You get the idea. So, I'm in university now, surrounded by other people. All kinds of people. (laughs) I'm expected to do things and be amazing and, you know, have the best years of my life. There's drinking and girls and boys and... There's the ever-present expectation that not only do I have to get laid, I have to get a first too. (laughs) Like, either of those things are likely to happen. I'm homesick. Homesick. And happy to be away from home. Happy to have met the people I've met. But also terrified. I'm mostly terrified. How does everyone seem so together? It's not long after Freshers' Week that I hear the numbers thrown about. There are seven applicants per place on this course. I start to imagine the others. Each of them slightly more deserving than me. Each of them a bit smarter. Or kinder. Or more well-adjusted. I only got in through sheer chance. A mistake or some kind of fluke. There were six people who'd wanted to be here. And each of them would have probably stood a better chance than I did. The image of them got stuck in my head somehow. They followed me around, wearing the scarves of other universities they didn't want to be at. They hissed at me when I got an answer. Peered behind me when I was writing an essay and talked to me about my deadlines when I was trying to relax. They became distinct. I stopped short of giving them names, but I knew who they were, the redhead with the upturned nose, the studious international students, the American and the Korean, the Oxbridge reject, this really posh one, and the shy mousy girl who hated uni life at her insurance choice. I don't know how it happened. One moment they were just some silly daydream, it was almost fun. <laughs> Then, I don't know when it started to scare me, but it did. I was terrified whenever I saw someone that looked or dressed like how I imagined them. I'd feel taps on my shoulder while working in the library, only to find no one around me. I could almost see them, almost hear them, as they critiqued me. The way I walked, stood... How he took notes, planned my essays. When I was working or drinking, everything, I realised I had a problem. I tackled it the only way I knew how. I took a long walk. A really long walk. By the time I'd finished, it was far past being a reasonable hour for anyone to be awake. It was dark, with only a little light sunrise on the edges of the sky. I was exhausted, but I'd stopped hearing them. I'd finally managed to outrun them. Then I caught it. Between a set of buildings by the Bill Bryson Library, something that shook, shivered. A mass, of darkening shadow. And it was reaching, holding itself up on one wavering, struggling arm and calling out to me with the other. It dripped. Seeing it filled me with a horrible longing, a desperate pain. And I was crying. I couldn't support myself. So I fell to my knees and sobbed. The thing in the dark reached out and curled around me. It was crying too. If you've been wondering what we have in common, I realised it then, when you work hard enough, and care about something enough, it hurts to feel like you're not good enough, like you don't deserve what you earn. Being young and insecure and overwhelmed is a pretty damn universal experience. This wretched thing that lies between everything else. It's just imposter syndrome. On my way home, I tried to figure out what to do with my imaginary competitors. The quiet girl I found sat by the river. I asked her about her insurance choice, if she had made friends. The perks of living in that city. I told her it'd get better and she told me she felt that it would. The posh one and the Oxbridge reject I dealt with together. When I caught them stood outside the castle, I asked where they were applying for their masters. Oxford and Cambridge, of course. (laughs) The American was happy with going to a larger city. The Korean had decided to take a year out and apply elsewhere. Finally, the redhead I caught in the library. She opened her mouth to make some comment, but I cut her off. You're in my spot,
0: I said. And she left. I've had a follow-up to some of our listener mail. If you recall, there was that person that said their boyfriend had cursed them? Well, it seems like they found the person who emailed in during the first episode to claim the crow outside their window was definitely an omen. I got an email from them this morning, and they formed a coven, so that's nice. I'm happy for them. I've also been asked to do some missed connections. The ones that were a little too strange for the university's confessions page. As this is our last episode, I unfortunately can't do any follow-ups on air. But hopefully you'll find who you're looking for. The first one reads, I'd love to make friends with you. You came to a Halloween party dressed as a priest. I was dressed as a witch and reading fortunes. I'm sorry I predicted your death, and I feel the cards may have been indicating a metaphysical death, rather than a literal one, now that I think about it. If you're still alive, maybe you could find me on Facebook? The second one is, I caught sight of you in the classics library Friday afternoon. You skulked in the shadows, red-eyed and hungry-toothed. I've thought about you ever since. Would you like to meet for coffee? And the last one. Our eyes locked across the shrine of St. Cuthbert. There was blood dripping from your eyes. My nose was bleeding. We fled in separate directions away from the holiness of that place. Same time next week? I've also got a few emails asking about my mental state, and about Brenda, the girl who called herself a cult sweater's. I haven't heard from Brenda or Occult Sweaters, or whatever it is you want to call her. I must admit, there's been times where I've thought about seeing if I could find her, to see what information she had, but practically I I don't think it's a good idea to pursue someone who was so fixated on me. That and I don't actually know if I want to know the truth about her. It's funny me saying this after all this time, after searching for answers for so long. But I think Brenda is better left a mystery. Whichever way it goes, there's no peace in it. I still think about what she said to me. You either deny this, or become it. And I'm still here, speaking to all of you. I mean, something did happen to me after I spoke to you last. She's right in the sense that you can only walk away from this unchanged if you refuse to think of it at all. And well, we all know I've done nothing but think of this. I have seen and come to terms with things that I didn't think were ever possible. I know what she meant. As for my mental state, I'm okay. Things haven't been easy, but I'll get through. And I'll try not to have too many more on-air breakdowns. Thank you for taking this journey with me, to the good and the bad. I know I haven't given you any more answers, but I feel like I've made some kind of progress. I've learnt things, even if I can't totally articulate those things to you. And speaking of articulating things, I should probably play you the last story of the evening.
2: It all started with me going to this formal. I generally didn't go to many. I just bought the ticket on a whim. I was sat with people I didn't know and I hadn't ever seen them before. They knew each other though and they were talking as I sat down. They introduced themselves and were friendly enough. I noticed all of them were wearing silver signet rings. Tarnished with age. They poured out their glasses of wine and offered me one, too. As the starter was brought out, the one sat next to me suggested that they offer a toast. They wore a velvet dinner jacket with satin cuffs, their hair long, and pulled back from a face with startlingly high cheekbones. There was something endlessly charismatic about them. Let us remember old dogs in old graveyards they said, raising a glass filled with red wine. There was a murmur of agreement from the others, and they did the same. The one who had made the toast looked at me expectantly. Would you like me to join in? I asked. Sure. Do you feel like playing along for this evening? I nodded and lifted my glass to clink against theirs. Their eyes were dark, watching me with interest. The table began their drinking games not long after this. During the dinner conversation, there seemed to be banned topics or cues. Mentioning one meant you had to take a sip of wine. Mention so many, and you had to finish your glass. From what I understood about their conversation, the first one to finish their glass had to perform some kind of forfeit. The girl next to me said something that made the others smirk at her. She sighed, and downed the last of her wine. From her evening bag, she drew out a small vial, and making sure no one other than us at the table were looking, she dropped a live spider into her wine glass. I went to flinch away, but they were watching me again, the one in the velvet jacket. I steeled myself, not rising to the bait. I watched as, without blinking, she poured a little wine into the glass, swirled it round a couple of times as the spider struggled helplessly and then downed it. The one in the velvet jacket leaned a little closer to me, their voice not much above a whisper as they asked, still interested in playing along. Goodness knows why, but I met their eyes and nodded. Down your glass, you'll need the courage. I obeyed. Their slim hands took the glass from me and they pulled a tiny penknife from their pocket. The handle lined with mother-of-pearl and made a small incision in their hand. A few drops of blood fell into the bottom of the wine glass. They cleared off the knife with a handkerchief and passed the knife and the glass round the table. I looked around the room and no one was looking at us. I realised that I couldn't make out what any of the other tables were saying to one another. Not even the faintest snatch of a word. I felt like we occupied a different space to the other diners. That no matter what happened, they wouldn't notice. Each person at the table, in turn, added a few drops of blood to the glass. By the time it had got back to me, there was a small pool of blood. I wondered what I was expected to do. Then the girl next to me, once she had finished adding her blood to the mix, poured in a little wine. Using the end of her fork, she stirred and let a few drops fall onto the carpet. She handed it to me. Anyone have any diseases I should know about? I asked. The one in the velvet jacket shook their head. What was I doing? Was I really so bored as to go along with whatever these strangers suggested? I turned to look next to me and realized that it wasn't just that. It was them, too. I winked at them and downed my glass. I couldn't believe I was being so foolhardy. The one in the velvet jacket touched my shoulder lightly and smiled. Now the fun can begin. They drew sigils, blessings and curses on scraps of paper, passing them to each other. Mine cursed me to live in interesting times. I didn't mind. After the formal was finished, we were all drunk. I remember we ended up in a graveyard, the smell of damp earth around me. A sinking feeling, like I had perhaps made some egregious mistake. I remember coming eye to eye with some dark shadow, vast black dog whose eyes shone in the dark. It snuffled at my hair and I shrunk away. The others stood back from me and waited. It wagged its tail, I heard one of them yell, as the group hurtled towards me. A handful of them pulled me into a hug, and I could hear the one in the velvet jacket laughing with relief. In the morning, I woke up in my own bed, with no memory of how I got there. My suit was muddied, but someone had removed my shoes for me. There was a blooded handkerchief in my pocket. A few days after this, when I had tried to convince myself that I had made up the strangest parts of that night, Someone had a bunch of roses delivered to my door. A bunch of roses and a ring box. Inside the box was a silver signet ring, tarnished with age. And, as strange as it might seem, both offers were welcome to me.
0: After I hung up with Brenda, I felt like the world had ended somewhere. My academic life was in tatters. I'd failed to make friends. I was homesick. This was a beautiful opportunity I'd been handed, and for what? All ruined because I couldn't handle myself or the strange things I saw. Brenda's warning only made things worse. What if she was right? That my only options were to ignore what had happened and drag my tangle of a life back round, or become totally lost to all of it and become like her? I just... Had to delete the next email someone sent to me about cursed vegetables or spiders flowing from the taps in one of the library bathrooms and wait for it all to leave me alone. Eventually, it'd be a distant dream somewhere at the back of me, or a shadow following at my feet. I didn't think there was enough left in me for that option. What was I without stories? Reality had never bothered to be kind or even interesting. The only thing that had ever made me feel like there was something more was the strange liminality that had settled over everything at the beginning of this. I needed it. It was the only thing that made me more than a failure. I left the studio as the sun started to sink. I found myself following the path of the river. There was someone making paper boats. She had her trousers rolled up, feet dangling in the water. She had Venus flytrap tattoos along her legs. If it was really her, then she kept her promise. She didn't so much as turn her head towards me as I passed. It was all too much. Like nothing was ever going to be solved or fixed. I'd fallen too far, too quickly down the rabbit hole. The only thing left was to keep going. I almost wanted to approach the girl with Venus flytrap tattoos look into her eyes and see what would happen. I was so tempted to put an end to this. But I didn't. I thought about my parents. I thought about Jeremy, of all people, who'd knocked on my door when he'd heard me crying last week, who still hadn't replied to the ten paragraph long text I'd send him about why Ghostbusters wasn't a good movie. And if anything happened now, I'd never get to see a 19-year-old boy defend the existence of Slimer with all of his pathetic heart. But I didn't go home and pretend I hadn't seen this either. I stuck to the path in between and kept running. I eventually ended up by the bit of hilled bead by the river. That was just me and this cow statue on the other side of the River Weir. I've always loved it. The scale of it. The curved bronze horns. The buildings behind it had switched on all their lights. They glimmered behind the statue as I slowed. At that angle, in that moment, two of the lights on either side matched where the eyes of the cow were. It made it look like it was glowing. It was too perfect felt something unravel in my chest. I started to laugh, and then it wasn't just the lights behind it anymore. It was the eyes of the bronze statue. The image of the sacred cow of St. Cuthbert was looking at me from straight across the river. The thing unraveling in my chest, it wasn't just me. The whole city came spilling out with it. It looked like a tangle of snakes of ribbons, of streets, that wove themselves up from settlements, the peninsula, St. Oswald's church, the cow and the cathedral, the castle and the houses that propped themselves up in patches. The secret places, the old gardens, the pilgrims' paths, the shrines, the mines, the viaduct, and the university. All of it was neatly curled about itself like a flourish on an illuminated bible. I realized that I'd found a home here, among it all. And then the swans came. I had been so fixated on the cow across the river that I didn't even notice them. (laughs) Until they landed like a cloud on top of the water. None of them were quite right. Too small, too large, or their wings would be oddly proportioned. They looked like swans seen through a lens of some kind. They looked like an old memory, distorted through time. Perhaps they were the oldest thing the city had to offer. A few swans on the water, remembered from a time forgotten by everything but the river Weir. I told you before, didn't I? The name Elvet comes from the word swan. I closed my eyes. For maybe thirty seconds or so. When I opened them, the swans had gone, and the sun had sunk below the horizon. It was dark. The cow's eyes did not glimmer with anything other than the electric light of the buildings in the distance. I walked home. And, you know the essays I was being dramatic about? It turns out I did okay. I know that this is not all the answers you might have hoped for. I know most of you will not believe me. Maybe you haven't believed any of us. That's okay. I'm not sure how much of this I believe myself, I just know something I didn't before. There are a thousand different faces to every city, a thousand ways of calling one home, and it's not always the obvious choice that wins out in the end. In the beginning of this, I talked about the feeling of separation, and looking back I think that might be something that's more universal than I thought. None of us ever really have the same way of looking at things. Some of us are just, admittedly, more unusual than others. And I don't mean to preach, but that doesn't mean we can't find people who like us for what we are. There's so much I don't understand. So much that doesn't make sense, and I still want to figure it all out. I'm still going to try. But there's also something pleasant in knowing that you're a little lost, a little distant. I figured out that you can be lost and home at the same time. And I think that's all the answers I need for the next couple of weeks, at least. Thank you again for listening. This has been the Elvet Mysteries. Good night. The Elvet Mysteries was produced by Kim Dean and Olivia Clark as part of Crow & Kettle Presents. It was written by Kim Dean. The voice of Livy Jones was Kim Dean. The cult was read by Jay Hume. Our original score, including the Elvet Mysteries theme, was created by Olivia Clark. You can find her on Instagram at Olivia Clark Composition. Crow & Kettle is on Twitter at Crow & Kettle. Please follow us to keep up with our next projects. If you liked this show, you might like our last podcast, Curse of Carmilla, a queer D&D gothic horror. Thank you so much for listening to The Albert Mysteries.